You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. Representative Kat Kamek is with me today, and I'm so excited to have her with me because I was I went back to school in my 50s and did a master's degree in American politics. And my uh, thesis was on women's electoral success in the Republican Party. And uh, it took me five years because I was going part time while I was working and all of that stuff. And so the 2020 election happened during that period of time. And even though there was a lot of talk about a lot of things in the 2020 election, one of the big things was is we elected a whole bunch of Republican women. And uh, Kat Kamek was one of those women, and she actually helped me by filling out a questionnaire that I sent to all of the women that had been elected about their experiences running for office, and I incorporated that in my thesis, and I'm so happy to finally talk to you. Kat, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's good to talk to you, too, Martha, and congratulations on all your success since that time that I filled out that questionnaire. <laughs> I know. And it's just like, you know, it was so funny because at the beginning of the classes, I'm in with a bunch of 25-year-olds, right? And I'm in, and plus I work for, <laughs> at that time, I was working for a Republican senator, so they thought I was horrible. The funny thing was, by the time we finished our cohort, they looked at me as someone that could help them get a job. So it was, it was <laughs> you know, you got to find the things you have in common, right? Um, funny how that happen it is true so first of all tell us about the women's caucus um before we get into the meat of the issues yeah you know the the cool thing about this is that it is bipartisan through and through so um my democrat counterpart Susie lee um we couldn't really be further apart on most of the issues than you can imagine i mean um i'm a pretty conservative uh representative and and she's pretty progressive on her side but when it comes to women's issues, there is a lot of middle ground that we can work on. And so really the, the work that we're doing with the Women's Caucus is highlighting that. Uh, things like military sexual trauma cases within the military that have gone unresolved for years, truly decades. Um, these are things that both her and I, as well as members of Congress, we deal with in our office on a day-to-day basis. Other things like breast health and breast cancer. Um, we really have got to do a ton of work and education in the way of encouraging women to go get their mammograms, to do the self-examinations, things like that, um, heart health with women. Um, these are issues that cut across party lines, and that's what we're really focused on. There are certainly political issues that we're just never going to be able to come to agreement on, and that's okay. Because if anything, I think that women can show that you can agree to disagree and still get along. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm happy. That's what I loved about it is that it was a bipartisan caucus because even though, yeah, there are those things you're never going to agree on because they're policy issues, but there's also things you can find agreement on. And I, I'm really excited about that. Now, in the last few days, you have actually it was probably about a month ago, you had an exchange with the director of the NIH about mm-hmm. all of the issues related to COVID and misinformation around COVID. Uh, I want to thank you for that, number one. But number two, 
are we going to get to the bottom of all of this? Are we going to learn the lessons we need to learn from how we responded to COVID by telling the truth? Yeah, I do believe so. I really think that there is so much that has yet to be uncovered and shared with the world um, that people truly will be shocked when it does all come to light. And being someone who subscribes to the theory that you don't know what you don't know, I think we're going to have a very long two years of really uncovering a litany of items that um, weren't even on our radar. When you think about COVID and the government response, it was a masterclass in what not to do. Uh, We now know the efficacy of the vaccines was not what the CDC and the manufacturers pretended that it was. We now know um, that there was a massive collusion effort between big tech, big pharma, and the government. That is something that can never happen again because in the end, you chase the money, and that's what it was all about. And, and so we have to get back to the place where there was actual science and data that was leading these public decisions um, for policymakers rather than the politics. And the politics truly is what has, um, I think, been the worst part of this. People have lost their livelihood. People's lives have been lost. And there's still not a lot of answers. So will we get to the bottom of it? Yes. Will there be consequences? Yes. Is it going to take a bit of time? Absolutely. So uh, my, my ask to everyone is there's going to have to be a little bit of patience because as much as we want to jump on it, and we are, there is just so much to go through because this is, this is not just the years of COVID. This is decades in the making of this type of really strange relationship of pharma and government and media that's something that we're going to have to unwind going years and years and years back. We're talking to Representative Kat Kamick from Florida's 3rd District, and uh, she's somebody I've been working with Adelaide for a while to Adeline for a while to get her on the program, and we're so glad to have her today. I'm a big budget hawk, okay? I've been talking about budgets for 25 years and getting back on regular order. Um, yeah. There are some plans out there that were in other Congresses that might work. I think in some ways we're looking at a 30-year mortgage instead of a 10-year plan to get back to where we need to be. But, but there, you know, you've got the RAND plan where it says, if you, RAND Paul plan, if you go back to the 2019 budget and build back from there. But there's a lot of ideas mm-hmm. out there is what I'm saying. And um what are are we going to get there? Are we going to get back on regular order for budgeting so that we can get back to managing our finances the right way? Yes, uh, I do believe we we will. But yeah, I mean, if we don't, we're we're going to lose more than we can ever regain. I think people up here in Washington recognize what's at stake. So regular order is a huge part of that. But I think the bigger component of getting our fiscal house in order is the political will. People today are driven by poll numbers and what is happening in their election rather than what's doing what doing the right thing. And I, I criticize equally the Republicans and Democrats for spending in the last several decades because it took both parties to get to this point. And depending on who was in the White House, 
you know, is when people were willing to spend beyond their means. And so I think we have to have an adult conversation, a reckoning of sorts that we say both parties are guilty of getting us here to this point. We need to be very serious and get back to the constitutional basics of what government is designed for because we're so out over our skis on this. I mean, we're doing things that never would have been covered in the past. And so we've got to recognize that we're overextended, that we're living in a time when we're bringing in more money than ever. And yet still we cannot pay our bills. We are $32 trillion in debt. We have a massive deficit. And if we don't have a plan to repay that debt, that is going to be shouldered by our children and our grandchildren. Do you and that's think, not right. That's not fair. Do you think we'll get a debt ceiling deal on, um, you know, I know the president keeps saying he's not going to negotiate, but then he had a meeting with Speaker McCarthy. So do you think we're going to get to a deal? We've got a couple of months left before we run into real problems. I, I think that the deal has to happen whether people want to or not. How irresponsible is Biden to say that he won't negotiate? That's childish. His spending is what has accelerated us to this point. You can't spend upwards of $10 trillion without consequence. And, of course, every American today, we're living with that because we have historic 40-year high inflation. Um, Well, he's been involved with every budget vote since 1975, (laughs) for gosh sakes. Exactly. Exactly. So not only has he had a hand in the pie since, you know, the 70s, but then you look at the last two years of his administration. It has been government gone wild. Every program that they could possibly imagine in the world, they have funded, except for the core basics like national security, where we have an open border, but then we'll support border security in the Middle East. Give me a break. So I think it's wildly unacceptable and inappropriate and irresponsible that Biden has said he's not going to negotiate. We know he will. He has to, because if we don't deal with the debt, the debt will deal with us. The interest on the debt alone is consuming more than discretionary spending here in short order. So people are going to have to be forced to make tough decisions. And I think this is when you're going to see people who step up and say, I know that I'm going to absolutely take a ton of heat for this. People aren't going to want to understand this, but we have to do this for the solvency of our nation, for for the future of our nation rather than your political pet projects that, you know, you think are the most important thing in the world. This is our country on the line. We've got to put it first. Well, and for a little perspective, folks, you know, for a number of years, we've been close to zero on the interest rate. It has been very low with a relatively small amount of interest on this humongous debt. But with the rates going up the way they've gone up in the last two years, the interest on the debt, which is on automatic pilot, by the way, folks, is tripled or quadrupled in its amount. And, you know, it's 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 unsustainable now. I want to ask you just two more quick questions. I know we've got to get you out of here. But one, how what's been the biggest impact on you and your family in coming to Congress? Um, I will say that uh, the schedule is brutal. Um, if you're doing the job the way that your constituents expect you to do the job, you will miss important moments with your family, which is really, really hard. Um, you're always on a plane going back and forth from your district to D.C. Um, you know, there have been times where, you know, my husband has a, a family obligation that he's covering for us because I can't be there. Um, you know, it's, it's things like that that are really, really hard. 
that people don't really recognize. And certainly no one says, you know, no one's expecting sympathy here. Let's be real. No, I understand. But I, I, I think that um, much in the way that my husband serves, you know, our community as a firefighter, and he's working overtimes and man, mandatory overtimes, you know, this job is a a 24-7 pursuit. And um, it, it truly is service. And when you think of it that way, you recognize that the, this isn't sustainable long term. So I, I think that's where if you're in this for the service aspect and, and you know, giving back to your country, you recognize you can't do this for 36 years like Nancy Pelosi, um, who's made a career out of it. So um, my goal is to try to change the culture to make members up here a little bit more responsive to their constituents, more open, transparent, and really to put everything they've got into the job. If people want to get in touch with you or want to know more about you, how can they do that? Best way is social media. Uh, being the token millennial up here in Congress, we're we're very active on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, we do not do TikTok. Uh, TikTok needs to be banned and taken off all platforms. Um, but I think that is a great way to engage with constituents. And I encourage people, you know, tune into one of our Facebook lives. I read the comments, um, even though everyone tells me not to. I read the <laughs> comments. I engage with folks. And, you know, it's a, it's a great way to let people know what's going on in their nation's capital and also for folks to tell me what's keeping them up at night. Well, I ran for Congress in 2012, made it to the runoff, and then um, I found that my gift is more helping other people get elected. And uh, I worked on a Senate campaign and a governor's campaign, and that was the advice I always gave all my clients. Don't read the comments, (laughs) but I understand (laughs) sometimes I read them. And even though my rule is don't engage, there are occasional times that I do, and usually I'm sorry, (laughs) but it's it's the way it goes. Yeah, for 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 a lot of the situations when you're engaging with a troll, um, <laughs> it doesn't end well. Uh, but for those that want to give encouraging comments, positive comments, I always try to engage with those folks and, you know, just be grateful and show them my appreciation for reaching out. Representative Kat Kamick, this is the first time, but I look forward to talking with you a lot over the years. Likewise. Thank you so much for what you're doing and have a great week. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It's the Martha Zoller Show, and it is so great to be here with you. And uh, Pew Research Center, who I love, by the way, uh, found that U.S. women average, average, earned an average of 82% of what men earned in 2022. That's slightly up from recent surveys uh, 20 years before, uh, from 80%. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting topic. And I was listening to a podcast yesterday called Trigonometry, where they were talking about this issue and about how women's roles change dramatically and not in the way we kind of thought they did. Uh, but I saw this and Julie Balke, uh has the Balki group and uh, is talking about this on how to do a better job of getting more salary par- parity with your male counterparts. Julie, welcome uh, to the Martha's Good Olive morning. Show. You know, it is, I've always had this theory, and you can tell me I'm full of you-know-what, um, that 
you know, this myth of the women, you know, of the 1950s, you know, where it was kind of the first time that we moved into the suburbs and men got in their cars and drove to work. And it was the the concept of the idle housewife, which I don't think ever really existed. Okay, I mean, I think one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves is that somehow women that stay home and women who work are different because because everybody's working all the time, whether you're staying at home or you're at work. And I took about eight years off from my career and uh, to raise children and that came back in and I did have to start over again more or less and kind of build things back but I think a lot of women make those decisions and that part of the reason why we make less money is because we make certain decisions related to our family or whatnot Uh, but also there is that 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 lack of parity also do you think there's more than one component to all of this Absolutely. And there are a few that I find to be the most, the most impactful on this. So first of all, women are less likely to negotiate for a higher salary when starting in a new role. We are much more likely to take what is offered than a man who's interviewing for the same role. And it, we, it's this, you know, I need to be liked, like they're giving me what they think I deserve, you know, what they, and, and there's a lot of stuff between the ears that goes on with failing to negotiate in a job. And I saw a stat once that, I forget the number, but it was very, very high of the number of hiring managers who said, in most cases, our first offer is not our best offer. And so women leave money on the table when they start in a new role where men are more likely to negotiate. And so you never catch that up. So that's part of it. The other part of it is when you do leave the workforce, as you did for a period of time, I'll call it the paid workforce outside of the home, then you do lose some time and lose some traction. And that, and so therefore sometimes the, the pay offered is a reflection of that. But I would also tell you this lovely phenomenon that in my early years, in my, in my earlier career, I was in human resources and I was a part of these conversations with department heads, hiring managers, male, who would be talking about what, what kind of raise are we going to give Fred? What kind of raise are we going to give Sally? And even though what you make at work should be strictly a function of the contribution you make at work, a lot of these men would say things like, well, you know, Fred's got a wife and family to support, Sally doesn't, and they would give Fred more of the merit budget than Sally. And so there's this bias that's still out there, I think especially with older people who see the woman's role in terms of income as secondary to her husband's or to a male's or less important. So it's a bunch of those factors. So which of those can we control? We can certainly control how we negotiate, how we step up, and ask for what we deserve based on our performance and our contribution and not be afraid of offending someone or someone not liking us when we do stand up for ourselves. Well, I think the hardest lesson I had to learn, I entered the workforce in 1980 and I'm as one of the only, one of the few women in the, in the workplace that I was in and I'm in a business now that is much more dominated by men than by women uh, as far as people that are on air. And so I'm used to being in that environment, you know, and I've never felt that I wasn't going to do well in it. I've just, my dad raised me that way. He was great at that. 
But I did learn over time, you had to learn that lesson that if you ask for more and you don't get it, that that you're not going to be fired. I think there's that also that right. fear. If yep. you stick your neck out there and then the, the person says no, you think, oh, no, they don't like me anymore, to your point, and, and something's going to happen. Uh, so I think there's a lot of stuff there, but I do think there's certain, you know, what I've what I've seen anyway, there are probably certain types of careers where women kind of make more money. My husband's an internist, and one of the uh, things they found is, is that female OBGYNs, female surgeons, female um, uh, 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 other doctors and female female doctors, they actually make more because because most of the patients are women and they want to go see women now. I see. Okay. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, isn't it? You know, how much of life really re- revolves around Econ 101. <laughs> you know, when there's a greater, right? I mean, it's so much in, in what I do goes into basic supply and demand when there is. And, and so that's, that's true. So they want more women. So they're going to pay more to attract more women. So now when you look at you know, the tech world or a lot of the worlds where there's a real shortage today, an employer who doesn't come to the table with their best offer, whether the candidate is male or female, is at great risk of losing that candidate to another employer. Right. And so things like gender fall by the wayside when there's a real demand for something and the supply is sparse. And that's where we are with certain professions right now. And I also believe younger women will do a better job of making the business case for why they deserve to be paid a certain amount and will be less likely to back down because I came of age in this exact same time you did started the job market in 1982. And all we did back then was try to look like men with our floppy bow ties and our, you know, our business skirts versus pants. And I remember the advice I got as a woman was if they ask you to make the coffee, burn it. So they'll never ask you again. (laughs) And I thought, wow. Oh, I'd burn it anyway, but yeah, I mean, so it was, it was a different time, but I, I think these younger women are more willing to stand up for themselves, step out and ask for what they, what they think, what they know they deserve. And also their salary data is a lot more accessible now. Back in the day, it was kind of a secret. So you can find companies are sharing salary data, salary ranges for open positions at a greater rate than they ever have. And so that data is readily available. And so if you're getting paid less than market, you're more likely to know it these days than we were. Yeah, we run, my husband and I run a correctional nursing business. And, um, you know, through COVID, we, I mean, basically, we've we've had dramatic increases in pay for our nurses because that's what we had to do to keep them. Uh, It was, you know, because of COVID, they could go almost anywhere and make more money. And we had to not only pay more money, but we also made our schedule a lot more flexible to try to make sure that there was that combination of things that keep because we couldn't match the money the hospitals were paying. You know, that's just we didn't have the deep pockets. But what we could do is give us give enough more to keep them but also give them flexibility. Like we had one nurse whose son was on a traveling soccer team and she wanted to have certain times off. And if we could make it happen, we couldn't do it 100% of the time. But if we could do it, we did it. And that's something that a small company can offer that a big company cannot. You know, it's, you, make a, you make a great point in that 
you know, for years and years and years, the thought on the part of employers was that money, it's all about money, that what people want most is more money. And at the top of the list of what employers think people want, money was always at the top. You ask the same polling question to the actual employees and money was right in the middle of the pack. And so flexibility, the ability to manage the different parts of my life has really always been important to people, especially women. Aren't there certain things, Julie, that you can't change? Okay, yes, I want parity between men and women. But women's roles, and they've come a long way, don't get me wrong, but there are certain things I do better than my husband does. And there's certain things he does better than I do. And so I prioritize those things that I'm better at, and that's the, where I want the flexibility. And he does the same thing. So it's, and of course, we're not raising kids anymore. So that's a whole different dynamic. But boy, when we were raising kids, I, you know, you had to have that flexibility because he was a guy who built for his time. So protecting that time was really important. So I was the one that needed the flexibility. Yeah, and, and it, it really has to be, you have to take a look at the family as a whole. Mm-hmm. What are your priorities right now? And we know those priorities change. When the kids start driving, certain things change. When the kids leave the home or go into school full-time, first, second grade, things change. And so it needs to be, I think the best functioning family units are the ones where everybody takes a look at what are all of our priorities right now, who's best, who's best equipped to handle these priorities, and then how do we then negotiate with work? But, you know, it's only been in the last few years that there's even been that room for negotiation in the workplace. Well, because more more women are in management. (laughs) That's why we've been able to do that. Julie Balke, founder and chief career strategist at the Balke Group. Um, We appreciate you being with us. If people want to know more about you, how how can they do it? It's thebalkygroup.com, B-A-U-K-E, or on LinkedIn, Julie Balky. Absolutely. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks, Martha. Putting the talk in news talk, it's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Right now, we're going to talk a little politics with uh, Dr. Charles Bullock. Uh, He holds the Richard B. Russell Chair in Political Science and Josiah Meggs, Distinguished Teaching Professor. And in 2015, he was named University Professor, an honor bestowed on faculty that have had significant impact on the University of Georgia. And he was one of the first people to write really about women in politics uh, way back in the 1970s. Seems like the a long time ago. Dr. Bullock, thank you so much for being with me today. <laughs> it was good being with you, Martha, and it was a long time ago. It was, and I quoted your work yesterday. I gave a speech to the Republican women of Fulton County and yeah. talked about your one of your first papers, which I used in my paper, where uh-huh. I uh, where you were talking about how usually women got into office because their husbands died. <laughs> right, mysteriously, right? That's right. That's right. So anyway, look, before we get into kind of political questions, and I didn't prep Dr. Bullock at all ahead of time because we just like to have a conversation. This legislative session looks to be fairly uneventful as well as just getting the work done. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, It helps the governor that he won with such large margins, both his renomination, but also his reelection. So I think that uh, at least on, on his side of the aisle, uh, any Republicans would think about pushing back, probably saying, no, this man's really popular. And uh, 
He also demonstrated uh, popularity with uh, independents and, and Democrats in his reelection bid. And so, so he he's, was... he's got a very strong hand right now. And the leadership of uh, the House and the Senate are both, uh, you know, they're rookies. They're new in those capacities. Now, they're not necessarily new to politics, but they're new as new, new speaker and new lieutenant governor. That also strengthens the governor's hand. Yeah, well, I, I got to interview John Burns for the first time, and the new speaker. And, you know, we looked at each other, and it was one of those things. Initially, he thought he'd never met me before, but as we got to talking, we realized that uh, we had worked on a project when I was working for mm. Senator Purdue in getting the Briar Creek Creek Battle location secured and recognized down in Screven County. So, you know, once we, we figured out that connection, I said, because I can't think it's possible that I've never met you. You know what I mean? Because we've both right. been in politics a long time, but we couldn't remember where. And that was an interesting thing because the Briar Creek Battle, of course, the, the, uh, the Continental Army did not win that battle, and you generally do not uh, recognize battles that you didn't win, but it was an important battle, and the fact we found this Continental grave with 150 soldiers buried in it, it was important to mark that spot. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit, um, looking ahead to 2024, we've had a couple of pieces in the New York Times where uh, one has said that the Democratic Convention needs to pick their own vice president uh, for Biden. And another one has said that his budget is dead on arrival. And it's not really the New York Times coming out against President Biden. But I think the New York Times is recognizing that this is probably not going to be an easy reelection for anybody in this cycle. Well, that's probably right, yeah. And there is a bit of precedent for allowing the convention to choose the vice president. You have to go back to 1956. But at that point, that was when Adley Stevenson was nominated a second time. And uh, once he got his nomination, he stepped back, and the convention essentially boiled down to, I think the final choice was between Jack Kennedy and Estes Kefauver, and Kefauver won uh, that. And, of course, that ticket did not succeed running against uh, Dwight Eisenhower. But it would bring some interest and drama to a national convention. And it used to be those were big events because you didn't know going into it who was going to be the presidential nominee. But now we all know, you know weeks, months in advance that uh, who has wrapped up the nomination. So it would, it would uh, certainly inspire greater uh, viewership if indeed the Democrats were to do that this next summer. It is interesting, though, when you think about Vice President Harris, you know, that basically what the New York Times is describing is her, but they don't want mm-hmm. her. <laughs> they want someone mm-hmm. else. Right. Right. Well, this is an interesting thing, too, I think, in that all the polling indicates that most Democrats uh, say they prefer someone other than Joe Biden lead the party. Uh, the Washington insiders uh, don't seem to be at all uh, responsive to that kind of kind of interest. Um, and usually when you've got a, a president, uh, yes, he gets renominated and usually fairly easily. When we did see a challenge to, uh, to Jimmy Carter back in 1980 when Ted Kennedy uh, mounted a challenge there. But usually it's pretty much cut and dried. Um, but the problem is that uh, you know, Biden is, is getting up in years. And the thought that and this could be true for both parties, to look to a younger generation to lead them, 
uh, would be appealing to to some voters. And I say I think that's true in both parties. No, I I agree with you. I mean, I've been saying for months that you know I really don't want anybody over seventy five years old running for office. Not to say they can't be counselors, they can't be mentors, they can't do all kinds of things. But but it is as John Kennedy said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation. In my view, and um, it's not you know it's a difficult thing to say because you do see I'm not one of these people that think that Joe Biden is incompetent or any of that but you see him declining uh and it's it's a difficult thing to watch and you would think that they wouldn't want to put him forth in that situation because this will be a different kind of campaign in 2020 he'll have to be out there more than he was in 2020 well that's right uh, he used uh covid and Adhering to the COVID protocols to not have much of a get out and shake the hands kind of campaign. That was pretty much true for Democrats up and down the ballot in, uh, in 2020. But with COVID now receding in our rearview mirror, it's going to be expected that the nominees of each party you know, be seen around the country, you know, walking rope lines, uh, as well as giving speeches. And so it's going to be a, a much more physically demanding campaign in in 2024 if he is the nominee than he experienced three years ago and will he hurt the bench of the democratic party by running again you know i don't know if that's the question i mean roy barnes it was was commonly thought that when he got in that race in 20 in 2002 that in a way he sort of squashed the democratic bench for a while because of of the new republican governors and you know, it'll be interesting to see. And again, I I don't try to predict the future. I just try to figure out, you know, what we can learn from the past and, and how we can apply it. Uh, one of the things that, you know, in the last couple of days, we've had this news story about renaming of Lake Lanier. And, and there's this, you know, desire they've renamed Fort Benning, you know, and you are the Richard Russell chair of the political science department. I have my papers. I'm sure you do, too, at the Richard Russell Library, which is the special collections library. Has this whole thing gone too far of looking at every single thing that's named for someone and then somehow trying to find some connection in this case to the Confederacy or to segregation or any of that, and then rename it? Well, if we think about the names of our cities and counties, and uh, I think I'm trying to remember the exact, I think there are only three counties, maybe four counties in Georgia that are not either have an Indian name or his names for someone, like Peach County, for example, is not. What that would mean probably would be that virtually every county we've got that has a person's name on it might have to be renamed, and this would be a lot of counties. It'd be a lots of uh, lots of streets, lots of uh, lots of cities would have to change their names, probably. Um, so I think this will will run its, itself out pretty soon, I would think. Yeah, because I think it's not it's not practical. I mean, I look at the example of where they changed the name of Clark Hill Lake to Strom Thurmond Lake, I think about 40 <laughs> right. years ago, and people yeah. still call it Clark Hill Lake. Now, right. at, at the University of Georgia campus, you had the Student Learning Center was changed to Miller Learning Center, and I think that transition happened, you know, that people right. call it Miller yeah. Learning Center, even though it was yeah. originally called something else. But that I was told at the time when it happened that with young people, it's easier to make those changes because you have a different group of people coming through, you know, every so many years. So 
Um, and I, I, I just think it's better to learn the history and maybe try not to repeat the mistakes than try to alter history. And that's what this feels like. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you really can't erase history um, because you know, it did happen. It did exist. Um, and I don't know. Um, you know. Most people probably don't know what the basis of most names that we have are. I mean, sure, they know who George Washington was and Thomas Jefferson, but lots of other individuals whose names show up on counties, um, you know, pe- people don't don't recognize that, don't, you know, don't know. For example, uh, mentioned Pike County in my class recently. All right, nobody knows what Pike County was named for, although if you were alive back in the 1840s, 1850s, he was a great explorer. <laughs> well, his first yeah. person to go to Pike's Peak. That's right. So, yeah, but again, you know, these things recede in time pretty quickly in terms of what their antecedents were. Charles S. Bullock from the third from the University of Georgia had a huge impact on my life, um, encouraged me to go back to school, which I finally did. And when I was thinking about uh, writing my uh, final paper, uh, you said to me at the beginning of this, I wanted to look at women's electoral success. And you said you need to look at it in your own party because you have a problem yep. there. And that's what I did. Right. So I appreciate very much your involvement and always being available. Thank you, Dr. Bullock. Thank you so much. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Right now, we are talking to Congressman Andrew Clyde, and man, oh man, has it been a week. Congressman Clyde, welcome. Well, thank you, Martha. It has indeed been a a week. It's been an outstanding week up here in Washington, D.C., uh, for the folks uh, of the ninth district and for all of America, actually. Um, so let's, but, uh, let's start out with some legislation ahead. because you were able to get something passed related to District of Columbia crime. And what a lot of people don't know is that the Congress actually is kind of the governing body over the District of Columbia. Uh, that's exactly correct. You know, the Constitution is very clear in Article One, uh, Section 8, Clause 17. It says that Congress has exclusive legislative authority in all cases whatsoever over the federal city. That means over Washington, D.C. So it's our responsibility to govern the city, the federal city, for all of America. And that's what the founders intended, that Washington, D.C. would be America's city. And so, you know, when uh, when we instituted home rule back in 1973 and gave the residents of Washington, D.C. some additional autonomy, uh, it was uh, with the condition that there would still be congressional oversight as the founders had intended. And as we have seen time and time again, Washington, D.C. has gone off the rails and crime is on the increase in a huge way. They have fiscally mismanaged themselves for years. And so it's time for Congress to step in. And this is the first step of where Congress is able to to literally take down their own legislation that they passed that Congress has to uh, has the opportunity to veto. And we're going and, and we're going to veto it. The House vetoed it. Uh, this was a um, revised criminal code act that reduced uh, mandatory sentences and eliminated minimum sentences for violent crime, including carjacking, burglaries, home invasions, assaults, uh, sexual crimes. Yeah, that just is bad policy. It, 
as the mayor said, would not make the city of D.C. safer. Uh, In fact, it would add to rising crime, is what I say, and the police department says the same thing. So we took this bill down, uh, this this D.C. Council bill, uh, by introducing a joint resolution here in the House. It passed the House a couple of weeks ago, uh, 250 to 173. I was uh, pleased to introduce the bill, my very first bill in Congress, and it passed the Senate, uh, 81 to 14. So with tremendous bipartisan support, and I'm looking forward to the president signing it. Well, hopefully he will do that soon because that's that is something he should do, especially with the wide bipartisan support. Now, yesterday he um, the president introduced his budget. Um, when will the Republicans in the House be introducing their budget? Because we're coming up close to that deadline because the way the process is supposed to work is that you have a framework on April 1st. You get it hashed out by april 15th we haven't met that deadline in a very long time but um what's the process how's the process going this year well i think you will see that republicans will put forth a budget it will be an excellent budget we will be on time as is expected and uh, it will be uh it will be a budget that is fiscally responsible and, re- and restores fiscal sanity to Washington, D.C. This, this budget uh, will not increase spending. In fact, it will decrease spending. For non-defense discretionary spending, we will be going back to FY22 levels. In fact, some agencies, some alphabet agencies, especially the weaponized and woke agencies, will be going back to 2019 or earlier funding levels. I tell you that we will be cutting $150 billion dollars out of the fiscal year 23 budget and pushing it back to fiscal year 22. We're going to, for the most part, we're going to protect defense spending. You know, there'll be some things in the defense department spending that will be adjusted, like the woke and weaponized portion of the the DOD. We're going to eliminate spending on that. Um, But the rest of uh, the federal government, the rest of the executive, we're going to eliminate all the woke and weaponized spending in the federal government. Uh, you know, if this is the way they're going to spend the money that Congress appropriates to them, they don't need it. So that and, uh, brings me to my next question. Earlier this week, the U.S. Department of the Army uh, released a report, I guess it was, where they were taking a look at things that were named around the country. And on that list was like Sidney Lanier and... Uh, Buford Dam, and it said it's possible that the names of these things could be changed because of the connection of the people they were named for to the Civil War. Um, first of all, when did you hear about that? And secondly, what, you know, what's next? What should we expect? Well, um, I heard about it on Monday, about when it broke. And since that time, I have been in touch with local leaders across Hall County, uh, those who have connections with Lake Lanier, who are involved in the Lake Lanier Association, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, you know, our politically elected leaders um, uh, across in that area. And to a T, every solitary one of them has said things like, it's foolish. They are definitely against it. They are completely against it. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I hold that exact same feeling myself. Uh, you know, for the Army to get involved in this is inexcusable, in my opinion. Uh, I have asked for input from the community. I've asked them to 
send me letters. Tell me what your thoughts are. You know, I'm, I, I want to hear from the community. And, uh, and so far, what I have heard is it has been entirely negative. And, um, you know, when you really think about it, the not just the fact that people have referred to this lake ever since it's, it was created as Lake Lanier, and it was named after a famous Georgia native, a poet, who wrote the Song of the Chattahoochee uh, in 1877, I believe was the year. Uh, and then you have the Buford Dam named after the city of Buford. These are local issues. We don't need the Department of Army engaging in local issues. So they need just to stay out. No, um, and, and look, when you look at the history of Sidney Lanier, he was a poet, he was a musician. Yes, he was a private in the uh, Confederate States of America, but I'm sure any person, man at that time, uh, was probably involved in the North and the South. I mean, that's not what defines him as a person and why he was chosen as the person to name this lake over. He was chosen because of his writings about the Chattahoochee River. That's why he was chosen. So um, oh, yeah. it'll be yeah, right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But again, to your woke and weaponizing don't waste our time and money on this. Don't spend money on reports like what we should name things. That is not the thing that's going to make uh, the country better, that's not going to make the economy better, and it's not an issue. Oh, you're absolutely correct. You know, we need to be spending our military budget on things that make us a more lethal military to, make, to keep us uh, as the finest fighting force in the world. And when we do things... That, um, that diminish that, and you see the Army has tremendous issues in recruiting now. They're down 40% last year in recruiting, and you look at the way the Army has has um, uh, become woke. People, I mean, we're a voluntary service here. People don't want to serve under that kind of, of um, uh, wokeness, and so it's a problem, but yet they want to spend their money on this sort of thing uh, that's not what we appropriate money to the Army for. That is not what the Constitution says the military is for. It's to protect our country. And um, so we're going to stand against this. Uh, you know, as long as I'm a member of Congress, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure there will be no renaming of Lake Lanier and no renaming of Buford Dam. Uh, and that funding is used appropriately for the correct mission of the executive branch of our government. I mean, that's just the way it should be. Andrew Clyde, thank you so much for your time today, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Martha. Always good to be with you. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com, and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.